This is Rumble, and I am Michael Moore. Welcome, everyone. We have all had a nice weekend. Some of you, it's been your Easter weekend. Some of it's been the end of Passover. And for all the good atheists and agnostics around the world, it's been a time when people have just been quiet (laughs) and left you alone. So we could get something done. However it was, uh, I hope you uh, enjoyed the past uh, few days. We are now at the beginning of another week, week two of the trial of the murderer of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Uh, Week two, I should say, of the witnesses. But I want to tell you what I have here on today's episode of Rumble, and that is my special guest, the great Aaron Sorkin is joining me here in a few minutes, and I'm very excited to, to have him on. I met Aaron uh, many years ago, and I uh, have always not only enjoyed his work, but have really been inspired uh, by it. And uh, he's right in the middle of filming uh, his next movie, but I asked him if he'd take a few minutes here uh, here on essentially Easter to uh, or Easter weekend to talk to me here on Rumble, and he was more than happy uh, to join me. So that's coming up here in just a, a few minutes. I want to thank all the people who uh, wrote to me, left me voicemails here over the weekend on Friday's episode. Uh, I spent a little bit of time talking about my mother. It was her 100th birthday on Friday, and I shared a number of reminiscences of being raised by this uh, wonderful woman. And I really appreciated these emails uh, that many of you have, have sent me. And I just, if you don't mind, I'd like to just take a couple minutes before we bring Aaron on to read a, a couple of these. Uh, the first one comes from Anna in Hampshire, England. And she writes, Hi, Michael. I've just listened to the podcast you made in memory of your mother and celebrating what would have been her 100th birthday. I'm a younger generation to you, so my parents are boomers. But my granny, my dad's mom, would also have been 100 this year, and your show reminded me of that fact. My granny didn't do anything so exciting as your mother, but unusual for her time, she did go back to work once my dad was grown up. She had to support the family and take some pressure off of my grandfather, who suffered what we would now call anxiety and depression, and went through at least one fairly serious mental breakdown. So she returned to work as a secretary, and really enjoyed it from what she told me. Granny was always a very difficult person who became more and more difficult as she got older. Visits with her were always very uneasy, but she taught me that you can love someone you don't like, along with the pain of watching someone very slowly fade away from life. Not easy lessons to learn, even as an adult, but important ones, and I wanted to thank you for reminding me of all the amazing women who came before me in my family. Regards, Anna. Thank you very much for that, Anna. The next one comes from Tony of Ohio. And uh, Tony writes, Michael, what a beautiful tribute to your mother, Helen Veronica. I was thinking of my mother this morning as I turned on your podcast, only to hear her, Virginia Ann, her favorite song ever, In the Mood. I began to listen, and it opened up something raw 
and tears started streaming for the entire podcast. I, too, was raised by a mother and father who taught us what your parents did, the golden rule, always. My mother's grandmother, Anna, came from Germany in the 1800s. She knew no English, got on a train, and headed out of New York City. When the conductor shouted Anna and stopped the train, she got off. It was the stop for Anna, Ohio. She thought she was supposed to get off the train because they called her name, but it, the conductor was just saying, we've just entered Anna, Ohio. She was 15 years old. I thank you for sharing your mother's going home song, Goodbye, New York. It triggered the memory of my great-grandmother and her strength and courage. Enjoy the beautiful spring glory this weekend. We are on this journey of awakening together. There's much to do. Keep on stepping. Our mothers are calling us forward. With gratitude, Tony from Cortland, Ohio. Right next door to Anna, Ohio. That's a great story. Here's the next one, and this is from Jamie. Dear Michael, I was listening to your podcast regarding your mom, and I I sort of felt convicted. Like, was I a a good political mom? So I asked my 24-year-old son, did I educate you for social justice? His response was, yes, mom, we are building the wall. (laughs) Obviously, he was being sarcastic. I probably could have done better with my kids, but for politics and justice, I did teach them well. Oh, and my meatloaf is decent. Not great. Decent. Thank you for all that you do, Jamie. Well, thank you, Jamie, for that. Someday I'm going to get some good meatloaf somewhere. And this final one here from Joe. Um, Wonderful show today, Mike. My mother also would have been 100 this year. She passed two years ago and instilled in me much of who I am also. My wife and I wrote this song last year, and we thought of your mom and you. You might like it. My love to you both, Joe. And then he's attached the song. It's called Rich Roots, about your family and your family tree. I I listened to it here just before we started, and I, I was impressed. So somebody sent me a song today. So here we go. Let's just play a little bit of this Rich Roots. I've been working on my family tree Not thinking about what will be Wondering what came before I know it means so much more Rich roots are calling Rich roots are calling me Okay, we've got Aaron Sorkin uh, waiting here. So let me just quickly thank our two underwriters for today's episode of Rumble. So first off, I want to just thank Amazon Studios. That's their film division. They make some great movies and they put out some great documentaries. And this one that's underwriting today's episode is a movie called Time. And it's by Garrett Bradley. She was nominated here with this film for an Academy Award for Best Documentary this past month. The Academy Awards are at the end of April here. But I just want to 
I want to tell you something that I really love about this film. You know, when, when discussing what's wrong about our system of mass incarceration, people often always focus on those who are wrongfully convicted. I have spent a lifetime focusing on this. And I just believe there are so many that should be nowhere near a jail because they're innocent. But here's what's interesting about this movie. This film actually centers on a family who did commit the crime. Oh, so it poses this question. If someone makes a mistake, does that mean that they are now no longer worthy of love, compassion, and to be treated as a human being? How do we treat those who've made a mistake? The prison industrial complex is not only unjust to people who did not commit crimes, it is barbaric and racist and inhumane to the people who have committed a crime. And that I and you, many of us just are unable to live with that. And this film helps tell that story and allows the audience to see life through their eyes. So, my friends, do yourself a favor. Watch the movie Time on Prime. I'll have a link uh, to the film right here on the description page of this episode. And again, I want to thank Amazon Studios for supporting this podcast, supporting my voice, and supporting the work of talented filmmakers like Garrett Bradley and her excellent film, Time. Our other underwriter today is ExpressVPN. Thank you very much uh, to them for supporting this podcast. The reason we like ExpressVPN here is because they are the people to help keep your privacy, well, private. Everything you've ever browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted is being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Yours. Your record. They have a record on you and me and everybody else. But with ExpressVPN, your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify you or me and harvest our data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So, my friends, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash rumble and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash rumble. Just go there, learn more about it, and support them for supporting this podcast. Thank you. All right. Is everybody ready? Here we go. So your brother's bound and gagged And they've chained him to a chair Won't you please come to Chicago Just to sing In a land that's known as freedom Chicago for the help that we can bring. We can change, we can change the world. 
perhaps more so than any living screenwriter, Aaron Sorkin's words have left an indelible impact on our culture. In his films, TV shows, and Broadway plays, Aaron Sorkin's brilliant mind and his gift for rhythmic, clever, and captivating dialogue has not only entertained us, but has also helped define how we see the world in works of his, such as The American President, The West Wing, A Few Good Men, The Social Network, Steve Jobs, Moneyball, The Newsroom, and now currently in The Trial of the Chicago 7. And his stage adaptation in 2018 through early 2020 of To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway, starring Jeff Daniels as Atticus Finch. It was so deeply moving and profound. I can't tell you enough how blessed I actually felt that I got to see his version of To Kill a Mockingbird. And I know this is going to be heresy to say this because the book is one of the best books we've all ever read. And the movie To Kill a Mockingbird with Gregory Peck, is that not one of the best films you've ever seen? What if I were to tell you that the Aaron Sorkin To Kill a Mockingbird, while honoring the original work, is a completely different experience. And one for me, here in the 21st century, affected me more than the book and the movie. His most recent film, though, which he wrote and directed, The Trial of the Chicago 7, is a mind-blowing film. And I encourage every one of you to see it. It tells the story of what was intended to be a peaceful protest at the 1968 Democratic National Convention that turned violent due to the violence of the police and the National Guard. It's powerful. It's a timely, timely movie, my friends, about injustice and racial inequality and the necessity to protest against all of this, especially when our government and its police and armed forces have gone to the dark side. The trial of the Chicago 7 has been nominated for Best Picture, and once again, Aaron Sorkin has his fourth nomination for Best Screenplay. So, welcome, Aaron Sorkin, to Rumble. Uh, It's a great honor to have you on my podcast. It's great to be here, and the honor is all mine. Well, thank you for that. But I uh, was saying in the introduction here, the impact, that you've had on our culture and the impact you've had on me personally in terms of how art and the politics and the culture and everything, how they can come together and how fiction in your case can sometimes tell greater truths Mm -hmm. than, than nonfiction, than, than a documentary. And of course, I mean, most of us who have followed you and your great work with West wing and, um, and so each week, a very powerful, uh, you know, obviously it, it's, it was your invention, your fantasy, so to speak, of what if, what if our White House, our presidency operated with a sense of decency, with a sense of that they were serving 
and working for the people as opposed to the other way around. Um, and when difficult situations come up, sometimes mistakes are made and how to deal with those in an honorable fashion. I mean, I'm not going to go into one episode after another, but it was powerful watching the West Wing and then post West Wing to see that that particular White House, it seemed was never really going to happen. Even though in the Obama years, we did get a, a lot of that. Uh, first of all, thank you. And, yes. Uh, the, the big what if that, that West Wing started with was, was this really. By and large in popular culture, our leaders, particularly our elected leaders, uh, are portrayed either as Machiavellian or dolts. Uh, and so I just thought, what if there was a workplace drama uh, set in this very interesting workplace where you can tell all kinds of stories where the characters were as committed and as competent as the doctors and nurses on hospital shows and the detectives on cop shows and the lawyers on uh, legal dramas? Uh, that, that why can't you do that? Right. And uh, it it appealed to a kind of romantic and idealistic style of writing that I had. And, and we took it from there. I mean, when I was writing the pilot episode of the West wing, I never imagined that there would be an episode two of the West wing. I didn't think that this could get on the air. And I certainly didn't think it would last as long as it did uh, and have uh, and, and be as popular as it was and have the kind of effect on people that it did. Well, right there. The fact that, I mean, how many people write a pilot? And and always in the back of your head as the writer, what, what is there is that I got to get this on the air. I got to get this on the air. Mm-hmm. And, and so compromises are made. Things are done to achieve this goal. What you just said was, is that you sat down to write that in a very aspirational way, thinking only of what would, what would this White House be like? And what would it be like if, if I could write the script every day mm-hmm. for this for this White House? And and you thought at the time you you had no guarantee that this was ever going to make it on the air. So no, I had almost it, <laughs> a guarantee that it would not. It would not. Okay, it would have been the first time that uh, a show about politics, a show in Washington, uh, had made it on the air. And there's also this, because I just want to respond to something that you mentioned in there, you know, the writer trying to design their show to to get on the air and to stay on the air and to syndicate. It, it, in a way, my friend David Fincher uh, is the, one of the greatest directors that we have who directed The Social Network, uh, once said to me that as soon as the studio knows that you want to make the movie more than they do, they own you. Wow. And um, I... I think that NBC, the network, and Warner Brothers, the studio, uh, kind of sensed that I I had written the pilot, I liked the pilot, and it's okay with me if there isn't an episode two. (laughs) Um, uh, And and in a way that, that saved us. Now, of course, once it did get on the air, I was very much committed to there being an episode three and four and five. Uh, and so on. Uh, and uh, I, I wrote and produced the show for the next four years. After season four, I stepped back. But uh, once, uh, uh, 
there, there, there was a, a minimum of interference from the network. It really only came early on when it was unclear if the show was going to be a hit or not. In the second episode of The West Wing, uh, an Air Force, uh, uh, an Air Force jet carrying a num of carrying medical personnel, uh, uh, doctors to a place in the Middle East that needed it, uh, accidentally wandered into Syrian airspace and was shot down. And uh, so we got an angry letter from the Arab American Anti-Defamation League. We, NBC, got an angry letter from uh, the head of the Arab American Anti-Defamation League, who may have had a point. Uh, and so a few episodes later, when Toby, the communications director, played by Richard Schiff, in just a throwaway line, referred to Hebrew slaves in Egypt 5,000 years ago, NBC's legal department sent me a note saying, please show your research. <laughs> so I, I sent them Exodus. I sent them my family's Haggadah. That's the only information I had. <laughs> so, but you see, I think because, because you weren't trying to, what you said, how they, they see that they have you once that you so desperately want this to be on the air. Right. That, that um, because you weren't that way, because you just wrote from your heart, uh, from your brain, and and without thinking. Now listen, this has got to last five years. Uh, I got to have five years of episodes so I can get into syndication. Th that that would have ruined the West Wing. It's frankly, it's a pretty good recipe for ruining anything. Yes. When I get a chance to to speak to students, new writers, uh, I'll tell them that you know trying to figure out what it is everybody wants and then giving it to them uh, is just a, it's a bad recipe for storytelling. Uh, I, when I write, I, I try to write what I like, uh, what I, what I think my friends will like, what I think my father will like. And then I just keep my fingers crossed that enough other people will like it, that I get to keep doing it. Yes. But you know, my first, series was on NBC. It was a primetime series called TV nation yes. back in the night, back in the nineties. It's great. Sir. And well, thank you. But I, my agent had called me and said, NBC wants to talk to you, see if you have any ideas for a TV series. And this is, and I was a filmmaker and I, oh, I don't want to do TV, you know, well just go over and have the meeting. So I walk in there and Warren Littlefield is the, is the head of the network. And I had decided on the way over the hill to Burbank to go in there and pitch something so outrageous and provocative. There's no way they're going to put this on the air. And then I can get back to making my movie. Mm -hmm. so, so I said, yeah. uh, I said, well, this is going to be like 60. I said, my, it's going to be like 60 minutes, but on acid. <laughs> and in the first episode, this is when GE owned NBC. I'm going to go down to, I think it was Juarez, Mexico on the border where they have this big GE factory. And I'm going to fire everybody on my crew that I've brought from the U S and hire only Mexican workers for 50 cents an hour. And, um, and it was great. Idea. So it was like, okay. Yeah. So now, okay. Now I know it's not going to get on the air. And, and he says, okay, well, what else do you got? Well, I was thinking, you know, I was, I was raised Catholic. I'm a recovering Catholic. Uh, I'm thinking the idea of confession, going into a booth and confessing your sins always seemed weird to me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, we're going to drive a Winnebago around New York city we're going to do a, a consumer's guide to the confession. I'm going to have an actress and an actor, and they are going to have to, because it's documentary, really flirt with each other and really kind of get into a groove. They would have they would have what the nuns would call impure thoughts. 
Mm-hmm. And then we would stop at the nearest Catholic church, go in. She'd have to confess her sins or he would have to confess his sins. And we'd get a penance. And then they'd have to do the penance on camera. And we went to 12 churches to see, the whole point was to see who gives the least punishment, who gives the least penance. And <laughs> and and then we would publish that as the tourists who are going to come to New York and sin. When you sin, go to these churches You'll get off, you know, with a have a nice day is all you'll have to. Oh, my God. They're laughing and I'm going, why are they laughing? By the time I get back over the hill to West Hollywood, I get a call from my agent said, you're not going to believe this. They want to do a pilot. I said, you're kidding me. Damn. And so, so, oh, boy. so but and that, but that guaranteed, I didn't, I didn't realize that. And I didn't realize that really till you just explained it. That's what made it a TV show. You're exactly right. Listen. Even going back one step from what I just uh, uh, told you, the notion that, um, uh, you know, why can't the, uh, in popular culture, why can't leaders be, be good guys the way they are in in other professions on, on television. Sure. Before that, what happened was uh, even though sports night uh, came out a year before the West wing, uh, both pilots were written roughly simultaneously uh, and I had never thought about doing a television series. My agent asked me if I'd like to have lunch with John Wells. Uh, and John Wells at that moment, as well as at this moment, uh, is a producer of very good television shows, China Beach, ER. Uh, and I thought, yeah, I'd love to meet uh, John Wells, even though I, I, there wasn't a thought in my head of, of doing a television series. And the night before that meeting with John Wells, uh, some friends were over at my house and a friend of mine named Akiva Goldsman, who had not yet won the Academy Award for Best Screenplay for A Beautiful Mind. Uh, he and I kind of snuck down to my little home office to share a cigarette uh, during dinner. And he looked at my, uh, and I told him, I've got this meeting with John Wells tomorrow. And he said, oh, yeah, you should do a television series. That would be great. I said, I have no intention of doing a television series. I don't know anything about television. Uh, I, I, I like watching television. I just don't know anything about making television. He saw the poster for the American president uh, in my office. And he said, you know, it would make a good series that except forget about the romance between the president and the lobbyist and just concentrate on, on the senior staffers. And I said, Keithy, I'm, I'm not doing a, a television series. This is just a, Hey, how are you doing lunch? And I showed up and I walked into the restaurant and I immediately saw that this wasn't just a, hey, how you doing lunch? Because John was there with a couple of executives from Warner Brothers and a couple of CAA agents. And I sat down and John said, so what do you want to do? And instead of saying, there's been a terrible mistake, I have nothing uh, to pitch you. I just came to meet you, uh, John. I said the first thing that that just popped out of my head, which was, uh, I'd like to do a series about senior staffers at the White House. Uh, and John said, you got a deal. Uh, and that was it. I, I walked out of this. What have I done? Uh, I have to write an episode, just an episode of something I would call the West Wing. Um, uh, again, never imagining that there would be a second one. Uh, but but that's how it happened. It happened out of my... Um, weakness when it comes to confrontation oh oh wow well that okay that i don't have but um but the the, the thing, <laughs> yes i don't know i i kind of wish i did 
because it would save me a lot of grief. But okay, but yes, the rest that, of us are glad you don't. Well, okay, well, thank you. But I, so so here's the here's the first day. Uh, so now the pilot succeeds. Now we've got a, a, a pickup for a series, primetime series on NBC. So the, in the first writers meeting, first day, I said, "Look, let me just say this: our goal is to get kicked off the air." That, and I know a lot of you are worried about your careers. <laughs> if if you're worried about your career, now's a good time to leave because they are going to be so angry and there's going to be so much hate mail that we we are going to. I, and I only want to do. Uh, these, you know, we did the like four or five, like 60 minute style pieces, but with satire and, and, mm-hmm. and our, you know, sort of sense of things. So your and, mindset, you're basically, do, you're, you're, you're doing the producers now. <laughs> you're yeah, exactly. Yes. That doesn't have a chance so that we can all get out of here. <laughs> Cause I've got to, I've got to get back to my movie making. I've made right. Roger and me at this time. You know, you had, you had already written one of the great plays, a few good men, of course, screenplays you'd written American president, et cetera. So it, it it's like, and, and if we can be honest, we don't really like TV. We don't like network TV. I, I, I don't know if I'm, I don't mean to be speaking for you, but generally we haven't spent a lot of our lives watching a lot of network television. Is that sure? To say? Uh, it, and it's, yes, I can comment on that in a moment, but yes, I agree. Okay. So, so I just, so I, I'm not trying to be arrogant about it. It's just, that's just the way it is. So, so we go out and we, we make all these episodes of um, just outrageous stuff. I took $10,000 to Moscow to try to buy the missile uh, that had been pointed at, <laughs> at, Flint, at Flint, Michigan. You know, we, we went in, we, we, tried to, we tried to fire the head of NBC. We tried to get dirt on him. We did, I mean, just all this stuff. And all that did was make them want more of it. And, and, we, and we started winning our time slot. Oh, geez. And I, I said, this is, this is not going to work. So actually what's going to work now is just let's keep, let's keep making episodes that will get us kicked off TV. Um, and uh, at least we'll feel good about ourselves. So, so I just, I think that this is, and, and in this, you know, time period, that as we got into the late nineties and the two thousands, you know, your, uh, your inspiration, because how many times did we watch uh, the West wing? And I want to get onto the other TV shows, but, but before we, I want, cause I really want to talk about the trial of the Chicago seven. Okay. The, 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 but the fact that how many times did people say after an episode of the West wing, how did that ever get on the air? Wow. Yeah. You know, I mean that, that's a line that you don't get to see on broadcast television and it got crossed by you. That's right. The reason, the reason that line is there. Um, and it, you were alluding to this a moment ago is that broadcast television, certainly from, for most of its history, um, you know, there, there, there's just been CBS, NBC, ABC, uh, and what you had to do in broadcast television wasn't it, 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 you have to uh, alienate as few people as possible. Uh, uh, that's why uh, growing up, uh, when you and I were growing up, every show took place in Springfield. Now, that's the joke of The Simpsons. Springfield where? We don't really know. Um, <laughs> everybody was white. The husbands, you never really, they, they were businessmen. Sometimes they were an advertising executive. But you never heard uh, the words Democrat or Republican. Right. Even on a show like Seinfeld, 
where Jerry Seinfeld is playing Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld, you and I know, the one who goes on The Tonight Show. Uh, he's still living in a $1,500 a month apartment because regular Jerry Seinfeld, a multimillionaire, uh, would alienate too many people. Right. He's, he's not enough like them. Television is different than movies and plays. It has a more intimate relationship with his audience because it comes into your home. Mm. Uh, and it's frequently something uh, you you watch while you're in bed. Uh, and uh, the success of a TV show really will be about how much do you like hanging out with these people every week. So for most of the life of broadcast television, it's been about alienating as few people as possible, not attracting as many people as possible, alienating as few people as possible. And here was a show that you, you used all the words we were familiar with from the news. Uh, people were Democrats and Republicans. People expressed opinions on issues. Uh, and I have to say, here's a big difference between then and now, and then just isn't that long ago. The majority of the really nice mail that we got came from people who identified themselves as Republicans, uh, who said, you know, I may not agree uh, uh, with the things your characters say, but I really like the patriotism of the show. I just, I really like the show. The characters are fun. I enjoy yeah. being with them. And today, uh, in today's political environment, you wouldn't do that. Uh, uh, the, the right wouldn't be willing to do that. It's about owning the libs, uh, and, uh, Hollywood's bad and, uh, they just wouldn't be willing to do that. Well, but it's clear both in that show and in the current movie and in everything in between, and certainly a few good men, the American president, the things we've mentioned, you love this country. There's a, there's a, there's a certain, there's a, a patriotism and I'm, I'm hesitant to use that word because it got it has now been bastardized uh, uh, for all the wrong reasons. But it's clear that you love this country and you want it to work and you want the system to work, even when it doesn't work. It's what makes your work very powerful, whether it's on television or in film. It um, It's how many of us leave a movie of yours uh, or or after watching a, an episode of, of The Newsroom and we go, I want to live in that country. I, I, it's and, very and nice I, to hear. You are 100% right when you say, I love this country. You're 100% right when you say that the word patriotism has been bastardized or co-opted into something else. It's a, it's a phony, silly form of patriotism that has to do with standing or kneeling uh, uh, during the national anthem. Right. Um, and, and saying Merry Christmas, uh, yeah. that kind of thing. Or wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. Wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. My God, yeah. how did that, that get politicized? That's how low we've sunk, yes. That right. is how low we've sunk. And uh, I do feel very romantic uh, about America. Uh, it's First of all, it's it's built into my history. My, my, my grandparents, like a lot of people's grandparents, were chased here. Uh, from Russia uh, with the with the Cossacks on their heels. Uh, their firstborn is my father. Uh, and my father, when he turned 18, which was right smack in the middle of World War II, enlisted uh, in the army. Uh, he didn't wait to be drafted. 
Uh, he loved this country that gave his parents uh, a home, uh, that gave immigrants a home and an opportunity. Um, while his father, my grandfather, by the way, uh, was unhappy. He and his friends, they were unhappy with the sweatshop conditions their wives, who were seamstresses, were working in. And they formed what then was called uh, Workmen's Circle. Uh, it would later change its name to the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union. Mm. Uh, so he was a, um, you know, a Russian Jewish union organizer, which was very popular back then. Right. Um, uh, and, and he got his head cracked open uh, for America. My father fought in the war. And when he came back, went to college and law school on the GI Bill. And as a result of that, just the GI Bill, uh, my family went from lower middle class to upper middle class in one generation. Then my parents had three kids and five grandkids, all of whom everybody's now paying their own way through college, paying taxes uh, into the treasury. It works. That kind of thing works. Uh, but what is unpatriotic, uh, what is unpatriotic is believing that anyone criticizing the government, anyone protesting against the government is unpatriotic. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just silliness. I know, I know you don't want to get into the Chicago 7 yet, but let me just say this, that the Chicago 7 and the thousands who protested with them risked their lives, risked 10 years in federal prison. If yeah. one of them had been a world-class athlete, I'm sure they would have risked their future as an NFL quarterback uh, for what they believed uh, was right. Stack that up against Republican senators who aren't willing to risk running in a primary and tell me who the Patriots are. Right. Well, let's get into it because I think... And we're going to have to flip back to To Kill a Mockingbird because you okay. did this. I've never seen a play three times on Broadway. so It really means a lot to me, Michael. And I, well, honestly, I wish I'd known you were there on those three nights. I, I had to, And I had to take good people with me, uh, family, close friends, friend, lifetime friends. I said, I need to not only have you see this this play, I need to see it with you. But that's incredibly meaningful. And when we get to it, I want to tell you, about the most profound experience I've ever had in a theater. Uh, but I'll, I'll let you run this. Okay. Uh, I just okay. Want to say, I'm assuming you're, you're buddies with Jeff, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. Jeff Daniels, uh, who plays Atticus Finch or played Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird, was also in, you made the film, uh, wrote the film, Steve Jobs. Correct. And Jeff uh, played uh, Scully, the the Pepsi CEO that comes in to take over uh, when they take uh, Apple away from Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. This is, uh, but I'm going <laughs> to, we have an hour to do this. So I'm going to try <laughs> to, I'm going to try to bang through each of these very important films that okay. have something to say that, that all of us, uh, I, if, you know, if I could do the syllabus of what needs to be seen, if you're an American and you care about this country, you know, a third of the films on there are films that you've made. So we won't be able to get into all of that today. But the the trial of the Chicago 7. So I'm a, I'm a little bit older than you, not much. But I remember, uh, obviously, the year of 1968. And we in Michigan knew Tom Hayden sure. uh, because he had graduated from Royal Oak High School just outside of Detroit. 
And he and his friends went to Port Huron on the Canadian border in Michigan and wrote the Port Huron Statement that was essentially... Yeah, and the the SDS was founded in Michigan. And it was founded in Michigan at the University of Michigan. So we in Michigan have this this connection. But, you know, this movie... You cannot help, and this is the genius of you. I'm sorry, I don't mean to embarrass you by saying this, but the, that you don't purposely set out to bang us over the head with, see, see the relevance? See, this, this it, there's none of that. And, and, I'll, and I'm going to say the same thing when we get to To Kill a Mockingbird, because in To Kill a Mockingbird, you took, in fact, we're just going to talk about both of these at the same time because the okay. parallels are so that they come back to back. And and Mockingbird is shut down by the pandemic mm-hmm. uh, a year ago. Um, I I don't know. I hope it comes back. Yes, it will. We will be back. Thank you. And I encourage everybody: if you make one pilgrimage to New York City, it's to see To Kill a Mockingbird when it comes back. But what you did in To Kill a Mockingbird, you take a a book that was written, I believe, in 1960, and a film that comes out in 61, 62, mm-hmm. um, that that we all saw and loved. It's a book we all read in high school and love and loved our whole lives. You, a a film with Gregory Peck. And what are you doing thinking that, that you can quote redo this, but what you did, and I'm speaking specifically now of the play is that you kept the story based and set in the 1930s in the South. You didn't, you didn't upgrade it to our way of looking at things now. And yet the changes that you made in the story, your writing, your invention, I told Jeff afterwards, I said, it was like I had seen a, a, a you can call it to kill a mockingbird, but I had seen an entirely different work of art because, because watching mockingbird through Aaron Sorkin's eyes and your writing, while you do not quote modernize the play, you cannot help because you give voice to the African-Americans in this play that with no disrespect to Harper Lee Mm -hmm. uh, or to the filmmakers, it just, you know, it was the time they were in, in the late fifties and early sixties. Well, you just put your finger on it. Um, uh, What I did, and I'll say my first draft was terrible because uh, what I did was uh, lovingly wrap the novel in bubble wrap and try to gently transfer it to the stage. I basically just took the novel and it was a greatest hits album by a cover band. I, I just took the novel and kind of wow. stood up all the famous scenes that we know. And our producer is Scott Rudin. Um, uh, one of if not the greatest. Yes. Another genius. Yeah. Yeah. Absolute genius. Ordinarily, I would turn in a first draft. Scott and I have worked together several times and ordinarily I, I would turn in a first draft. Scott would have me come to New York, sit in his office for a few hours every morning, then go back to my hotel room in the afternoon and execute the notes that we had talked about. And we'd do that for a few days or sometimes weeks with Mockingbird. I turned in the first draft. I sat in his office for a total of 20 minutes uh, for one day. And he said, uh, listen, you, I know it's scary, but you got to write a play. Um, uh, you can't. It shouldn't. You got to write your. You got to write your play. Exactly right. You're the author of To Kill a Mockingbird. Now, um, uh, uh, you are not helping Harper Lee across the street. Uh, and so, I dove in, and I decided first of all 
I'm a terrible impressionist. I, uh, uh, I, I can't do a Harper Lee impersonation. I can only write the way I know how to write. And I shouldn't be, the book was uh, published in 59. The movie came out in 61. Uh, I can't pretend that I'm writing this in 1959. For one, one is an example you just brought up. In the novel, uh, there are really only two significant African-American characters, Tom Robinson, the defendant, and Calpurnia, uh, the Atticus, that Finch's family's made. And in a story about racial injustice in the Jim Crow South, neither of the two African-American characters really has anything to say. Uh, Calpurnia is most concerned with whether Scout is going to wear pants or a dress to her first day of school. Mm. And Tom Robinson gets to plead for his life. Uh, but that's it. This was not uh, a response to wokeness, which wasn't yet a word when I was writing this that uh, that was in our vocabulary. Right. Uh, it wasn't a I wasn't even responding to, you know, this can't be a white savior uh, play. Uh, I was just responding to I want to hear their voices. These are two characters who I really want them participating in, in this story. Um. Uh, and so uh, I did that. And another thing, just purely from a, uh, th th this is just dramaturgy now. Uh, another thing Scott pointed out to me in those 20 minutes is that the protagonist, everybody knows this, any freshman playwriting student in their first two weeks uh, knows this, the protagonist has to change. The protagonist has to be put through something and be in a different place by the end of your story than they were at the beginning of your story. That does not happen to Atticus in the book. It does not happen to Atticus in the movie. He's the same guy at the end uh, as he was at the beginning for the simple reason that in the book, in the movie, Atticus isn't the protagonist. Scout is. Uh, she's right. the one that changed. She was innocent. Now she's not so innocent uh, anymore. Uh, well, on stage, I wanted Atticus to be the protagonist, which meant he oh. had to go through something, which meant he had to change. So I thought, well, what does Atticus change from to? Uh, does he change from a racist into <clears throat> someone who believes in, e in equality? No. Is he a bad lawyer turns into a good lawyer, a bad father who turns into a good father? No, no, no. Um, and it's simply <clears throat> upon reading the novel again, it struck me that throughout the novel, Atticus is an apologist for racists throughout. Um, his whole thing about you, you have to walk a mile in someone else's shoes. Uh, you really have to get inside someone's skin and crawl around before you can really understand them. That was a way of excusing Bob Yule. Well, you got to understand, he lost his WPA job, and that really brings a man down. He excuses his neighbor, uh, Mrs. Henry DeBose. Um, uh, well, a terrible racist. Well, you got to understand she just stopped taking her pain medication, her morphine, and that makes people a little crazy. He excuses the whole South. It's the South, Cal. Um, things move slowly here. Just give it a chance. People of Maycomb are good people. These are my friends and neighbors. We know them. They would never act that way. And that line... These are my friends and neighbors. We know them. They would never act that way. Well, all you had to do, Mike, was look around. We, we were all saying the same thing about the tens of millions of people 
supporting Donald Trump. I don't get it. You know, we've, yeah, we've always disagreed, all of us uh, here in America, but I mean, we all have eyes and ears, right? We're looking at the same person. What are you talking about? Uh, so what I did uh, uh, with Atticus is that I took him from there, uh, a, a guy who just badly doesn't want to recognize the horrible racism uh, in his own community, in his friends and neighbors, to someone whose eyes were opened, gets it, and is willing to suit up and fight now. And is challenged by his children. And is challenged by his children. What is wrong with you that you just say, oh, she's a nice old lady, you should be exactly. nice to her. And it's, and it's like, and the, and, and so what the, what the audience hears and you don't, you, you do not change the 1938 or whenever this is set tone you, you, but in the audience, and this is where the audience and sitting in the audience and the audience is responding gutturally. You hear it every night, every three nights I saw it, the way the audience shifted in their seats and got uncomfortable and, and then just went, yeah, yeah, because we're being told well, you know, the people that voted for Trump, they're good people. They're good people. They they don't mean what they say. Yes. We need to re we need to reach across the aisle. You know, and it, and the level what are now called the the sort of moderate Democrats who are going to try to hold up what Biden is trying to do because well, you know, we need to understand why they feel no, actually, I don't need to understand uh why they're racist. They're racist. I don't need to understand why a man treats a woman a certain way, why there is brutality. It's wrong, and it needs to be said that it's wrong. But yeah, I amen. think that's when people came out of the theater, and I'm just listening to people at intermission. If I listen, Aaron, I listened to people while they were having a drink or a Coke or a, a juju bean or whatever, <laughs> they were admitting that they were being profoundly changed and the play was only halfway over. That, that, wow. that You can't imagine what that means to me. And you've queued me up to tell you about the most profound experience I've ever had in a theater. Okay. We did a performance of To Kill a Mockingbird at Madison Square Garden for 18,000 public school students, oh, which may sound yeah. crazy. Uh, how crazy. can you do a play at Madison? And I, by the way, th this was done. It was Scott de Blasio, New York Board of Education, uh, Jim Dolan at Madison Square Garden. I mean, a lot of people had to get there because this was a very expensive performance that, that we were giving. Uh, the cast and Bart Scher, our director, were rehearsing on uh, a set built just for that one performance because now suddenly we're in the round, right? We're at a basketball arena. <laughs> right. They were rehearsing during the day in a warehouse in Queens. All the while, I'm thinking, you know, this is just going to be a very well-intentioned train wreck. Uh, there's there's no way this thing can work in a place that big. Uh, I don't see how it's going to work in the round. And mostly, I don't know what uh, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th graders are going to do on a Wednesday afternoon when they've been let out of school and the lights go down. Mm. Uh, will, will anyone even be paying attention to the play? Or are they just going to be talking uh, to the people around them? And as I said, ends up being the most profound experience I've ever had in a theater. First of all, it's the first time this production anyway of To Kill a Mockingbird played to an entirely diverse audience. 
Uh, the, the fact is that uh, theater tickets are very expensive. Uh, and so not everybody, in fact, very f- too few people uh, uh, can afford them. And I like everything is, that Scott's doing uh, to overcome that obstacle. $10 student matinees, that kind of thing. Uh, so we're playing to a young audience, most of whom were completely unfamiliar with To Kill a Mockingbird, hadn't read the book, hadn't seen the movie. And we're playing to a completely diverse audience. They were rapt and they were cheering and gasping. And what they were doing that a largely white audience does not do is they were not seeing Tom Robinson as a tragic figure. They were watching him on a hero's journey. Right. Uh, because a very significant difference between the play and the book is that Tom's undoing on the witness stand when he simply says, I felt sorry for her, um, which is something a white jury doesn't want to hear from a black man when he's talking about a white woman. And everybody oohs and ahs in the court when he says, I felt sorry for her. In the book and in the movie, it's a mistake. Um, uh, he just said the wrong thing. In the play, he says it on purpose. We see in the first act, we see Atticus warn him not to say that. Right. Uh, I mean, you can't say that in court. Uh, say this instead. Uh, say she looked like she could use a hand. Uh, say that. And on, on the witness stand, um, uh, this terrible prosecutor keeps hammering him and hammering him. Why did you do it? Why did you do it? Why did you do it? She looked like she could use a hand. She looked like she could use a hand. And then finally, Tom Robinson looks at him and says, I felt sorry for her. What did you say? I said, I felt right sorry for her. Um, That suddenly Tom's a guy who, if he's going to go out, he's going to go out standing up. And the kids went wild uh, wow. for that. It uh, was a hero's journey for them. Wow. It, I have to say, this happened, what you just described. I, on one of the three nights I was there, and uh, clearly uh, Scott Rudin and you and others, whoever was responsible for this, it wasn't just the $10 student matinees, because this was a nighttime performance of To Kill a Mockingbird. And back in, and in, in, the, uh, in the mezzanine, there was an entire school, middle oh. school, middle school students from Harlem that sat there. And I went back that's, there. Um, that's fantastic. I had a friend who actually who had a daughter in that school. And I went back because I just wanted to hear what they were saying. And and because also in, then in, this, in that second act, they, um, they made the same sound you just described in Madison Square Garden. When, when Tom says that from the witness stand and it was powerful and it was clear, it was just a reminder how usually I'm sitting around mostly white people uh, in the Broadway theater. But, but that night it was, it was, I thought, wow, this is so great. And this was before I knew you were going to do this. When you did this in Madison Square Garden, a friend sent me a, 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 an iPhone photo from up in the rafters at Madison Square Garden and he's and he's and you can see the audience. You see the theater in the round. And he writes to me and he says, "What's different about this picture? You know, <laughs> other than the other than the fact that it's in Madison Square Garden, it's a diverse audience, etc. What's different?" And I'm like, 
Uh, um, the Knicks aren't on the floor. I don't know. <laughs> what's what's the difference? He writes back and he goes, you don't see any screens, any lighted screens. The students are not on their phones. That's right. They're not, they're not, they are in rapt attention to That's this play. Right. And I, and then I, I thought, and it was, and after that, Rebecca Miller, uh, the film director and, and also the daughter of Arthur Miller, uh, they, he, she and some friends formed a group because uh, in so many schools across the country, arts and especially drama have been removed from the curriculum. Some schools will have a, a, they'll have a school play, but it's only an after school activity. There are no longer drama teachers in high schools in many schools across the country. And she said to me, she said, you realize that here in, in New York city, the home of American theater, that there are almost two thirds of the high schools do not have a drama teacher. Now, this is and, a subject close to my heart. Oh, good. Um, well, I joined her board. I joined her board when she told me this. I said, I'm in whatever I can do. Yes. I, whenever I can, I help out a group called PS arts, uh, which puts qualified teachers and equipment into public schools where they've had to cut uh, art, music, drama from their budget. Uh, uh, fr from their curriculum because of uh, budget. And uh, kids should have that. These 18,000 kids at Madison Square Garden, uh, not only were they unfamiliar with uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, most of them, most of them had never seen a play. And I could just tell. Uh, and I was able to kind of walk out in the middle of the crowd because none of them knew who I was. Um, uh, so I, I was able to walk out and listen to people they wanted more. They want more theater, more plays. They want more experience like this. So I am going to take the opportunity of being on your podcast to issue an ice bucket challenge to my friend, Lin-Manuel Miranda, um, and say these kids would go wild for Hamilton. Do Hamilton for them. Lynn, it's why you wanted to be in the theater. I promise you the experience It'll it'll be the most profound experience you've ever had. In wow! Theater. Well, I I will send him the, uh, this podcast. I know he'll do this too. He will do this. It, it, it's it's it's. it's I know. He'll go crazy. He'll go crazy. It, yes. It, wow. Well, I mean, I did not know this that you were uh, active in, in in supporting getting our arts back in the schools, and especially in our public schools. Uh, this is. All the and it's not just drama; it's debate, it's band, it's so many things. Uh, it, it's so many things, and you've also now queued me up for this. We need to. I'm sure there's a publicist on this line begging me to talk about Chicago Seven. Let's I know we're getting this. we're getting there. We're getting uh, there. We, <laughs> we have this. to get there. Yes, Michael. At some point in a democracy, you have to blame the voters, right? Yes. Ultimately, it's our responsibility. Everybody. We have to yeah. produce better voters. And so we have to take teaching civics. Oh, seriously. they've removed it from half our schools. They've removed it. Yeah. Uh, it, it has to be put back, taken very seriously. The civics teacher should be the highest paid teacher in the building. Yes. Um, uh, not teaching right and left, but teaching enough to know that you know, that our elections are free and fair, that you don't have to worry about ghosts in the closet, teaching enough to know that a president can't cancel Dr. Seuss. That's 
It's not only not what happened, but it's not the way it works. It, it can't happen. You don't have to worry about that. Uh, uh, just, just teaching how our democracy works, and 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 teaching the students how they can how they can fight back, how they can get involved. That's right. That's right. Uh, what are things that happen on the federal level? What are things that happen on the community level? All of that. It's it's so critical, Aaron. Yes. And, and and because now we've created a civics illiteracy in this country and that we're turning adults out into society, not knowing how the system works, not knowing the rights that they have uh, and how they can uh, and how they can get a law passed. Uh, we did this uh, I, just off, uh, quick aside, a young person just out of high school and college in Michigan back in 2017 decided that we needed a constitutional amendment outlawing gerrymandering, making it a crime and also getting everything else that we need. Same day voting, uh, same day registration, all the things that make voting easier for people mm-hmm. and the state of Michigan, the people of Michigan in 2018 passed this constitutional amendment. It was the most amazing and it was done by somebody in her in her early to mid twenties, she organized this out of her dorm room. And um, it's like, if we taught civics the way they used to be taught, there'd be so much more of this. I know. Uh, I know. Uh, all right. So my message is we, yeah. we need to train people to participate in a democracy. So in 1968 at the democratic convention, a group, a very disparate group, by the way, not a group, yes. not a monolithic group, not a group, all of the same stripe by any means, not all of the same stripe, but they knew that this was wrong. The war was wrong, uh, all of this. And they collectively decided to go to Chicago to peacefully make their voices heard at the democratic convention that year in the months before the convention, we had lost Martin Luther King. We'd lost Bobby Kennedy uh, uh, Gene McCarthy, who had run to again, was going running against Johnson, uh, did not make it. Johnson decided to uh, not run for re-election, but instead his vice president was uh, going to run. But the war was not going to end, mm-hmm. and so a group of various leaders of different groups, people who weren't leaders of groups but who were just activists, joined together to go there and have this demonstration. And what happens is, just to cut to the chase, the police, Mayor Daley at the time, the original Mayor Daley, right. decided that they were going to brutally assault anybody who had chosen to come to Chicago to air their peaceful grievances. And, and as the commission determined later, it was a police riot, not a riot of demonstrators, Correct. but a police riot with Billy Club's and everything else they could to create injury to those who wanted to express their democratically protected freedom of speech. And, you know, various people through uh, books and film and TV shows and whatever have tried to capture this moment. I, I was a teenager in this moment. I was active in the anti-war movement. I had gone down to Washington, D.C., uh, to to protest, I had I had police who chased me. I knew what tear ga- I knew what tear gas smelled like. I remember one cop on a horse 
specifically singling out me because let's just say I didn't run that fast. Oh boy. And, and, and so I'm, I was in this moment and yet, and, and because I was a member of this moment, I've never seen me or those of us, the, the masses that were against this war accurately portrayed without some sort of kind of, I don't know what the word is. You probably know some kind of, you know, yes, liberal, a liberal uh, lens. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but always, but always um, uh, trying to uh, stereotype various people. And I don't know how many of the Chicago seven you have met or ever met. Just one, Tom Hayden, Tom Hayden. Okay. So I knew Tom very well and I knew and, and had met Abby Hoffman in his final years. Oh, really? Yes. And wow, Aaron, I mean, I, as if I can speak on behalf of the millions who opposed the war in Vietnam and, and how we have not been accurately portrayed. And I mean, not just poorly portrayed, but also romanticized so that future generations thought everybody was out in the streets. Everybody was against the war. No, right. You nailed this. You absolutely nailed this. I couldn't believe after I watched this film and my, my only regret, was because I had to watch it during the pandemic. I had to watch it on a TV screen, and I don't care how big my TV screen is. You made an epic, an epic film that needed to be seen on a large screen, and I needed to see it with 300 other people, and I was denied that by this pandemic. That's my only criticism. I criticized the virus, and I <laughs> and someday I want to see it the right way, the way you intended it, but. But even there on the TV screen, I, my jaw, I was dropping and it was me- I was mesmerized by it. And I, I, I called up my sister, who's only 11 months younger than me. So we were in the same par- you know, demonstrations or whatever. You've got to watch this. Nobody has understood us other than this uh, uh, screenwriter and director who is a, a good, I think, probably six years younger than us. So you weren't quite there, Aaron. You weren't you weren't in the streets in 1968. No, no. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, it's listen. This all began in 2006 on a Saturday morning. I was asked to come over to Steven Spielberg's house, which I just need to point out is not common. I don't hang out with Spielberg <laughs> on Saturdays. He told me he wanted to make a movie about the Chicago Seven, and I said the Chicago Seven. That sounds fantastic. Count me in. And I left his house, called my father, and asked my father who the Chicago 7 were. Um, I had a vague sense that there had been some civil unrest at the Democratic Convention in 68. Uh, I had a sense that Abby Hoffman was a counterculture figure. And all I knew about Tom Hayden was that he'd been married to Jane Fonda for a time. So there was a lot of learning to do. There are about 12 good books, some of them written by the defendants themselves. There's a 21,000-page trial transcript. The trial lasted close to six months. Hmm. Uh, but most critically was the time I got to spend with Hayden, uh, who gave me something I wouldn't have been able to get from the books or the transcript, uh, which was kind of a look, even though sometimes he was unintentionally giving me a look at it, but it was, it was a look at uh, the tension that existed between Tom and Abby, two guys on the same side who plainly can't stand each other and each thinks the other is doing harm to the cause kind of a reflection of the tension that exists today between the left and the further left. The people 
who think that the best way to make change is to do it slowly and incrementally, and the people who are tired of slow and incremental change. It, the reason year after year after year the film wasn't getting made was that the two riot sequences in the film were budget busters. Uh, a film like Chicago 7 is not a Marvel movie. You're not going to have a lot of money to make it. Uh, and every time a director would sit down to budget the movie, they'd get to the two riot sequences and the wheels would come off the wagon. I don't want to give credit to Donald Trump for anything, but he is the one that got the film made because he would have these giant rallies before and after he was elected president. And there'd right. be a protester, protesters at, uh, at the rally. And he began, began getting nostalgic about the old days when they'd carry that guy out of here on a stretcher and I'd like to punch him right in the face and let's beat the crap out of him. Uh, and Stephen felt, you know, the, the time to make this movie is now. We thought the film was plenty relevant last winter when we were making it. We didn't need it to get more relevant. But it did in May uh, with the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Suddenly, protesters were in the streets in cities across America. And in a number of those cities, those protesters once again were met with riot clubs and tear gas and demonized as being anti-American and unpatriotic. And then, of course, the grand finale on January 6th. And Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, God knows how many people stood up at a microphone and did exactly what the Chicago 7 were on trial for doing. Right. <laughs> so I've been asked uh, uh, since the movie came out, uh, did I make any changes to the script to reflect events uh, in the world? And the answer is not a single one. The world kept changing to reflect the script. Right. I actually, I remember how, when you wrote whatever, when you came to the final draft, not, I don't mean the, the shooting draft of the, mm -hmm. of the film, that was some time ago. Well, it was actually, um, because for me, and I know many other writers feel this way, for me, a script isn't finished, it's confiscated. Uh, uh, just at some point, an adult, the producer, the studio, somebody says, pencils down, we have to point a camera at this now. Uh, and so for me, you know, the shark gets as big as the tank. If you're going to give me 14 years, I'm going to do 32 drafts. Uh, why 32? There wasn't time to do 33. Uh, right. But I was just doing it the way a screenwriter would, just to keep making the screenplay better, not to, uh, you know, incorporate things from the way the world has changed. This, this film, though, um, and I guess what I want to make clear is, is that you didn't write this after the January 6th attack. Uh, you no. didn't write, you didn't write this before uh, uh, the violence of Trump, both in his presidency during the election and after the election, that this is the, the sort of prescient nature of, of this film, not just the story, which took place in 1968. And again, like with Mockingbird, you don't throw in references that are, obviously more modern, the mistakes that a lot of screenwriters will make, younger ones right. maybe sometimes, because they think that, that we talked about things, you know, 30, 40 years ago, the way that we talk about things now, and of course we don't. But So you, you keep this movie very much centered in 1968, and you flesh out these characters as real human beings, not characters. You don't right. sit there watching this going, wow, that's, that's Sasha's, he's really playing a great Abby Hoffman. You you forget 
five minutes into the film that that's Sasha Barrett Cohen. Well, that's music to my ears. Oh. And uh, I, I, one of the things I'm, I'm happy about is that the movie leaves you feeling good. Uh, that uh, you just feel a little bit taller at the end of it uh, than, than you did at the beginning. Yes. Uh, it's, it, 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 listen, it's gonna, there are parts of the film that are going to infuriate you, uh, uh, to be sure. Um, but uh, uh, at the end, um, I, I won't give away a spoiler, but Tom Hayden, uh, the most buttoned down of the group, the one uh, who's been saying, you know, look, we just, just do what the judge is telling you to do and we'll, we'll get out of here. Um, uh, makes a grand act of defiance to power uh, at, at yes. the end of the film, and yes, um, and that's always a sight to see. And and Abby Hoffman is played by Sasha. Um, Abby Hoffman is played by it's it's an incredible cast. Uh, yeah. Every morning coming to work, I felt like somebody was tossing me the keys to a Formula One race car, and all I had to do was not put the car in the wall, and these actors were going to win. Michael Keaton as Ramsey Clark, Frank Langella as the judge. Uh, Eddie Redmayne as play, playing uh, Tom Hayden. It's, right. Mark Rylance as William Constable. Oh, Rylance. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable. Not only was I so seriously moved by this film, so energized by it, and it, like you say, and by the end of it, ready to get up off my pandemic couch and... <laughs> do something anything and and it's like and and this is and i'm watching it i'm watching it after the murder of george floyd mm -hmm. i'm watching it during all this time that that trump in the final weeks before the election is calling he's calling for a civil war should he right. lose wow right none of us knew what was going to happen and and to, and then now to watch it again uh, here as i as i did this week um, I encourage people who are listening to this, all of you, to 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 please, please watch this film because it it. And I don't want like you. I don't want to give anything away. I don't want. I just want you to experience it because yes, you're watching 1968, but you are experiencing it through your night, your 2021 eyes and ears and soul. And when a movie can do that. Oh, Jesus, Aaron, come on. I sure appreciate that, Michael. We all do. We should probably tell people how they can see it because I don't think it's in the theaters this week unless maybe you're in New York or L.A. But uh, Actually, it is in a few theaters in uh, in New York now that have opened up, but yes. you can watch it on Netflix. It's on Netflix and, every, you know, I shouldn't say everybody, but there's 140 million of you who have Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> so More than HBO. So, so you know... I encourage you to, to see this film. And uh, if we have just a couple more minutes, I want to, I just want to touch on newsroom. I am one of the people who, one of the millions who've signed petitions to please bring this show back. Uh, you probably have moved on, but I'm telling you, Aaron, that starting with the pilot episode with Jeff Daniels, he's the anchor man. Uh, he's, he's burned out. Mm -hmm. He's lived his life as a Republican. Right. And 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 he has had it with yes. how we are being told the news night after night after night. And and you can go on. I, I don't want to encourage you to watch a clip of the movie, but if you want to get a taste of newsroom, go on YouTube and watch the 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 uh, the anchorman Will McAvoy's speech in the pilot.
that he gives at a, I believe he's speaking at a uh, Chicago at Northwestern and it's yes, um, college. He's asked uh, why is America the greatest country in the world? And he gives an unexpected answer. Yes. And, and for you to write that to, to here's here, here's who you are, Aaron Sorkin, you write, you, the, he gives the answer that we are not the greatest country on earth. Right. And you're like, your breath is taken away. I've never heard that said on TV. And, and yet here he, and he says it so beautifully and eloquently. And by the end of it, what you are feeling, at least I, and I think a lot of other people too, maybe on the far, far right, they hated it. But most people I think who watched that said to themselves, damn it. You know, he's, I love this country so much. He's right. We aren't number one. What happened to us? What can we do to get it back? And and for three years, this this television series on HBO uh, gave us one incident, and you you each episode was based on an actual thing that happened in the news a few years prior, and right. and and what would happen in the newsroom that day if Will McAvoy was the anchor of of the uh, of that newscast. And Sam Waterston was the, the, the news director. And Jane Fonda was the, how shall I say, the Ted Turner the, of the network. That's right. A, a genius um, move, if by the ever way, there were one. Fonda is the most uh, magnificent woman. Uh, uh, you, you, uh, I don't know if you've ever met her. Uh, oh, yes. Oh, yes, of course. I met her. Impressive woman. Before I went to my first demonstration as a 15 or 16-year-old, she and Tom came and spoke at a church near Flint in Michigan. And, and I went to hear her, and then they asked a few students if they wanted to come afterwards for, you know, uh, soda or whatever. And I was one of 15 students that got to spend a couple of hours with her. Oh, it's the first time I met her was back then. This would be, this would be now we're talking 1969, mm-hmm. ni- 1970. Uh, it'd be, you know, we're talking early 70s. It must here. have been pretty shortly after the trial. Shortly after the trial. Uh, and they had then, I think they had just gotten together and um, it was, it was so moving and, and I've, met her on and off over the years she's given me an award and i have a film festival in a little town in michigan and she came to my film festival two years ago she came and 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 we showed her films and we spoke and i i just yes she's an amazing amazing person and and we got a visit paid to us in advance by the police the local police saying that they are requesting that we cancel the jane fonda appearance at the film festival they scared like, of protests they were scared of protests i said you are to you're the police you are to defend the constitution you take an oath you want protests you want you want protests because it's america and i was like i couldn't believe and this is in the year 2019 that i'm that i'm listening to this oh my god and that she would have to go through it and oh man no she's in She's incredible. And the fact that you got to work with her, uh, you know, again, I'm sure another oh. high, high point in your life, but, but so number Tremendous high point in my life is there, I'll, I have to ask the question that I know 
thousands are asking who are listening to this, is there any chance in the future that the newsroom could come back or could be a movie or anything because we, we were left high and dry by the decision uh, not for it not to continue? Well, I, 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 I would never say never. Um, and God knows I love the people that I worked with. Uh, if I could go back and, uh, and do something again, I, I always felt that there was a fundamental misunderstanding uh, between the show and specifically people in the press, which is that the reason I had set the show in the recent past, as you pointed out, um, where, you know, we'd be going along and suddenly we find out that, oh, this is the day of the Boston bomber uh, at the marathon, uh, that kind of thing. And, you know, a date would go on the screen. Yes. But the reason why I set the show in the recent past was to show the pros how it should have been done uh, here. If you guys knew what you were doing, you'd have done it this way. And that, that wasn't at all the reason, nor was nor was that what I was trying to do. Yeah. I set the show in the recent past so that I wouldn't have to invent news, so that it felt like the world that we live in. Um, uh, by the way, if I had to invent news, I never would have invented Donald Trump getting elected president. That would have been implausible. Right. Uh, and uh, so... Um, but can uh, I say something about these critics and people uh -huh. in the press about this? And this has bothered me for now some time. Um, and, you know, and I've always, every time I read something like this, and this is not... This is not the, the the majority, but there's always this one or two or three uh, uh, clever uh, journalists, clever critics. Mm -hmm. By the way, I've declared film criticism and television criticism dead. It, it happened sometime, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. <laughs> it's so pathetic. But nonetheless, and, and they still give me these critic awards. I'm grateful. Don't don't misunderstand me. I'm grateful. But I want I'm to just, say the same thing. Yes, I, I love film critics. Yes, yes. <laughs> but I'm just, but 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 one or two clever clever writers want to point out. They want to try to show they're smarter than you, and they're because mainly they are jealous. They are jealous of the fact that we have a writer amongst us that can write these lines, and that you know, and the, well, we shouldn't be able to hear the writer. Oh, really? Yeah, that, that's what you always say when you're watching a Shakespeare play, isn't it? You know, yeah. no, you're grateful uh, to Shakespeare and we're grateful to smart writing. We have been so dumbed down in this country. And the fact that you are still with us and you are still giving us the smart version, the smart version of Steve Jobs, not the not the thing that we're supposed to be, that we're the movie we're supposed to make about him. You make this other movie, and you make it about his relationship with his daughter. And 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 I often think about your movie whenever. Well, I, I honestly, one of the times I thought about your movie was after George Floyd, and the videotape appeared of the at that time the eight minutes and forty six seconds. Yeah, and it was so well shot. That's, I'm sorry to think like a filmmaker here, but it was like, I couldn't believe. And he's looking right into the lens, mm -hmm. like, like you're next. And, and it turns out it's a 17 year old young woman, a 17 year old That's right. in Minneapolis. And she stands there fearless, fearless with that camera. We wouldn't know about any of this without her. And I've told you, I've said, you know, that, you know, there's a particular film that I might be talking to the director here someday 
that's you know my favorite film of the year <laughs> but but, I, but the most important movie of the year was shot by a 17 year old i was knocked out uh by so many of the witnesses this week uh in the trial the 17 i think he's now 18 year old yeah. store clerk feeling so guilty because if he had just taken uh, uh the 20 dollars um uh the mma fighter uh, on the stand who wouldn't give an inch uh boy that that crowd that standing on the street the girl you're talking about who took the video uh the the firefighter hansen oh uh, i have to tell you that when i see people like that i really am filled with a lot of hope you know just at the moment that i think we're cooked this is unsustainable uh, just the moment where I'm kind of feeling happy, and I, I know a lot of my friends will will quietly confess this, that they're starting to feel happy that they're closer to the end of their lives than the beginning, because um, because they just don't want to see what's next. Uh, just when you're feeling that low, and you see these people on screen, um, you, you know, Don Quixote puts on his rusty armor again and, and goes back out. Uh, they, they were an inspiration. Uh, just so inspiring. I felt the same way all week. Yeah, we do have to go. But listen, you tell people what you're doing right now. You're, you're, is okay, that I'm actually, um, uh, I've begun shooting a new movie. Uh, it's, after all this, it's called Being the Ricardos. It's about the relationship between Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Um, and it, it takes place during one production week of I Love Lucy, Monday table read to, uh, to Friday audience taping. It is not I Love Lucy. We're not remaking I Love Lucy. Uh, but um, it, it, something happens that week that uh, threatens their marriage and threatens to end Lucy's career and I Love Lucy. Uh, it's uh, And it'll be out in the fall. Yes, uh- I'm not going to say what that something was. I, f- I have a guess. I, I was going to say, and then I decided, no, let no, it be. No, don't, don't say it. I think it's enough to know that that I'm guessing then that because of what you've just told me, you're going to see something again that you haven't seen before right. in a movie, what you what you think you know about Lucy and Desi, and, and the love for this country and the bravery it takes to stand up for what is right. In this right. Country. And you just used the magic words when you said, think, you know, uh, yes. the only thing better than a story. If you are a storyteller, the only thing better than a story you don't know is a story you think, you know, that oh, that's the truth, man. Yeah. Aaron, we've got to come back and do this again sometime. I hope so. I'd love to. And no, I've really I, I, enjoyed this. Thanks for giving me so much time, Michael. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, no. Thank you for this. And we'll cut, we'll talk about the social network and Mark Zuckerberg. How yeah, the hey. genius of coming up with Trent Reznor to do the music. So uh, many things. Genius, yes. but, uh, but yes. And Trent Reznor. <laughs> yes. And Trent Reznor. So thank you, Aaron Sorkin, for all that you've given us. Thank you for making one of the best movies of the year uh, in the trial of the Chicago seven. And it's, it's uh, man, you're an American hero and you are and, Michael Keep it up. and a treasure. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Take care. Be well. You too, sir. Wow. There's a lot to, a lot to think about there. So pleased to have Aaron Sorkin on. 
and I'm glad he'll come back uh, someday because there's so many other things to get into, including his take on where the country is right now and where we're going. So thank you, all of you who uh, listened uh, today uh, to this episode of Rumble. Thank you for whatever you're doing to stand up, fight back, be aware of what's going on. There's a lot of work to do, my friends, um, and I'm here to do it with you. Thank you very much to our executive producer, Basil Hamden, our editor, Nick Quaz, and everybody else who helps me get this podcast to you. We'll talk to you soon. This is Rumble, and this is Michael Moore.